spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. You say Wakanda forever, so we give you more Wakanda. It's episode 354 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and you might not know that there is a new Black Panther story out right now, and it is from Serial Box. You can read it, you can listen to it, and you really should because it is an intense story. And a couple of the writers actually joined me this week, Tanana Du and Steve Barnes, the married writing team, going to talk all things Marvel's Black Panther, Sins of the King, maybe a couple surprises thrown in there as well. You'll have to find out here in just a couple of minutes. Also going to be talking about a new documentary series from Marvel. It's on Disney Plus called Behind the Mask. Some very, very big nerd news about The Last of Us series dropped this week and a whole bunch of other stuff to talk about as well. Yeah, you know I'm going to talk about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier trailer. I don't care how long it's been out. I haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. There's so much to pack in to this week's show. I want to get it started, and I want to start it in a big way. My spoiler-filled review of the Season 4 premiere of Black Lightning, up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Christine Adams from Black Lightning, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, since they say it in the intro, I'm going to say it. Black Lightning is back, and for a fourth and final season, the premiere happened this past week, and I want to go ahead and give a spoiler-filled review, actually, of this of the season four premiere because it's you know it's been out for a little bit now. If you haven't had a chance to watch it, of course, you're not going to want to hear this part. Fast forward a little bit, but I really want to take a look at what happens in the episode, especially with Jefferson Pierce. Jefferson is not in a good place at all, and how could he be with Henderson's death at the end of season three? He's taking it. Very hard. And I mean very hard. And while all this is going on, you got rival gangs fighting over the flow of drugs and weapons in Freeland. Tobias is support, acting like some sort of philanthropist now. He's kind of put, putting the wool over everybody's, ever, over everybody's eyes. Lynn's actually testing the gravedigger meta powers. She, she's injecting it into herself still to try and isolate the meta gene, or at least that's what she's telling herself. You've also got the girls are, that are out there by themselves trying to clean up the streets because Jefferson won't put the suit on. There's also a new police chief who's not a meta fan. There's a new detective that was kind of Henderson's protege and not quite sure about Black Lightning. Does he want to work with him or does he not? But even though Jefferson doesn't want to put on the suit, you see he's doing things very Black Lightning-esque, right? And the family's in shambles right now. And, you know, Lynn and Jefferson are in couples counseling and Jefferson's really going over the edge. He he saves a young man from a couple of police officers in this in this episode and right in, you know, plain view basically using his powers. And then he does it again after Jennifer gets hurt in the episode. He goes after the 100 gang member who who hurts her as Jefferson Pierce. And even Gamby at one point in the episode goes, "Dude, you got to put the suit on for one to protect your identity for two. Your body's not supposed to handle these powers on its own. And yet Jefferson's the one lecturing the girls on how reckless they're being. So I'm just going to say it. I'm a little mad at Jefferson for a couple of reasons. One, he's being a little bit of a hypocrite. And two, dude, protect your identity. 
haven't you already been through the ringer enough? I get that grief is making him do some very dangerous things, and grief can do that, right? So the portrayal, and I don't want you to, don't get me wrong, it's not a bad episode, so I don't want you to think I'm going there. What I'm doing is, is, is I'm showing you, as I'm talking about how, what they're giving you the, is the portrayal of how grief can be destructive if not channeled the right way. And I think that that is a brilliant depiction of this in this episode because Jefferson is off the rails right now. He is not in a good place, and it is leading to some very, very bad things. And it's keeping him from, you know, basically helping his family, not just in the family life, but in protecting Freeland. And Jefferson thinks he's doing that. But is he? Because he says he wants to just protect his family, and that's it. But he clearly can't help himself, right? But in doing what he's doing, he's not protecting his family because ultimately, if he's revealed as Black Lightning, that doesn't protect his family at all. If anything, it's the exact opposite. And the one person that knows that secret is Tobias. And now he's right there, spoiler alert, in Lynn's lab as like some sort of board member now. So as Tobias draws closer, Jefferson gets more and more reckless. And then you've also got Lala, which, by by the way, is still in the fold. You almost forget that he's there. He's actually running one of these gangs, and Thunder and Lightning are kind of making things difficult for him. And he's kind of targeted Jen as the stronger of the two, and that's how she ends up getting hurt by this metagun. In the first place, does she heal? Does she not heal? If you see what happens at the end of the episode, it's not doesn't look good. So it just seems like there's a lot of turmoil in the Pierce family right now. And and we see how great Jefferson can be when he's focused, when he's got a clearer mind and when he's locked in the amazing things that this family can do when they are a unit is incredible. But when you see that when just one of the cogs in this family is out, how it just does not work. They work so much better together. So as a fan of the show from the beginning, it's frustrating to see them because they were at one point they were together. Right. And look what happened. And you keep getting these cracks and fissures in that. And then you see everything that can crumble down around when that happens. And and it seems like they just don't learn from that mistake, but that's the beauty of it, right? The flawed heroes. That is the beauty of this show. And I just, I really think that this new police chief and this new protege of Henderson's going to be a huge fact because they're already suspicious of Jefferson after one interview and some evidence that they collect. And again, the recklessness because of Jefferson, there was some evidence that he might've been involved in this attack against these officers, Right. And whether you think Jefferson was doing the right thing or not, that's not the debate I'm having here. The debate is he did it in broad daylight, and he potentially revealed his identity as Black Lightning. And now Black Lightning's being portrayed as someone who is now crossing that line into just basically mangling people that he doesn't like, whether it be that gang member or these police officers. So now they think that They already think that metas are dangerous, and Black Lightning is giving them every reason to think that's the case. And again, it's because Jefferson is broken right now. And how he gets fixed, 
I don't know. I know that what's happening with Jennifer is not going to help this. It might even make it worse. So clearly things are probably going to get worse before they get better. But that is going to make for some very interesting storytelling this season on Black Lightning. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Black Lightning's the Season 4 premiere. Make sure you're watching every Monday on The CW. Up next, we're going to shift gears and talk about Black Panther. As a matter of fact, new series from Serial Box. Going to talk to writers Tanana Rivdu and Steve Barnes about it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Lavian Barnes from Lucifer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You guys know how much I love talking about Serial Box. Some great stories on there. They started doing Marvel stories, what, like a couple years ago, I think it was. When I saw Black Panther up there, I'm like, I've got to talk about this at some point. Black Panther's Sins of the King is happening right now. And a couple of the writers that are a part of that are with me right now. It's Tanana Du and Steve Barnes. How are you doing? We're hey, doing great. We're doing great. How are you? You did great. I'm doing great. Hey, I, I'm tr- just trying my best here. I'm, trying, I'm just trying to sur- sur- survive in a land of names where it's hard for me to pronounce. And it's difficult for me, but I, I'm glad I got it. I'm glad I got it. So we're off to yeah, a good start. Great. So T'Challa is a character that really goes far beyond just being the Black Panther. So what's the most exciting aspect of that character for you that you wanted to explore? Wow, we're getting right into T'Challa. You know, I, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that you can have a really good character, but very few characters touch the zeitgeist. Very few characters trigger people as T'Challa. I have my own theories about why he did. So it was what interested me was telling a story, understanding that there's an audience out there that is starving for stories of T'Challa. You know, the re- the cultural reaction to Black Panther is because he's sui generis. There wasn't anybody like him. He excites something different, and especially among you know, the, the children of American slaves, the descendants of slaves, you know, the children of the diaspora, you're talking specifically about a, a set of images that we did not get. So in respect to that, you know, that's a mighty responsibility because on the surface, you simply have to tell a fun story, an adventure story, people hitting each other in the faces and costumes. But underneath that, you have to ask, what am I up to here? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? And I, I liked that challenge. And, and beyond the cultural reaction to T'Challa, which is huge, there's sort of the personal aspect of the conflicted king. You know, he has all this power at his disposal, all this history at his disposal, can do whatever he wants. But Wakanda has been hidden for good reason for so long. And now we've reached that point in history in this project, you know, Marvel's uh, Black Panther, Sins of the King, where... Wakanda has opened up a bit and is testing a relationship with the outside world. And let's just say the test ain't going that great. So so then you're in a situation where you both have to be held accountable for everything you weren't doing in the past and also taking responsibility for how you walk into the present and the future. And it's a lot for this sort of ethical character. He's he's ethical without being dry. And uh, I, I, I love that about T'Challa. Uh, you are a- good man with a good heart oh, that's a, oh my a goodness good that was so good and they didn't ask you to narrate i mean come on really? <laughs> well, that's okay william jackson harford does not need he any help from us he oh my did. gosh How we'll, many we'll talk accents we'll talk about him in a couple seconds too because okay. he was very very good but i want to actually <laughs> ask you about that because you don't come in until i think it's, it's chapter what three or four that starts three. your Thank story you it was that. three yes three. So, but in the first couple of chapters, like you said, things aren't going well. So it's almost like they're like, there's this big mess and then they go, okay, here, you go. <laughs> so 
what's what's that collaborative process like and what was your approach to dealing with those issues that you just it just came up on where your story started well luckily it had all been hashed out in the writer's room it would have been sort of catastrophic and i think serial box understands this to try to bring in different sets of writers and then you just sort of pick it up wherever you know oh didn't we work on a project yeah, they, we they did. tried to do oh that my oh my that's God. juicy was, but we probably no, it, was horrible. it was not a serial box project <laughs> nothing to do with serial box and it was <laughs> It was one of the, it's always those like short writing assignments that turn out to be the yep. most horrible. And that was an example of how you don't do it. So what Serial Box knew wisely is that we want to bring in Ira Madison III was the lead writer to come up with the, the basic template at the beginning. And then we sat in the room and hashed it out over a couple of days. And it was intense. It was my first writer's room. And I also wanted to, to shout out that we had so, uh, so many great writers. Uh, in addition, Jeffrey Thorne, Mohali Mashigo, who's actually an African writer. She's from South Africa, I believe. So that is a big deal for us to, you know, I mean, obviously Black Panther is an African-American sort of imaginative creation, even though he was created by uh, white writers, but it's a character that really, really resonates with, with African-Americans because like Steve said, we don't have that. We don't, we were robbed of a sense of history and legacy and lineage. Yeah, in many ways, T'Challa has exactly what was taken away. Yeah. black people he he has his own name <laughs> he knows his he knows his lineage his history his mm -hmm. culture his language he has his own you know his own gods his own sense of afterlife and, and generational wealth by the way that yeah. is passed down and then there's that yeah. <laughs> literally the, the stuff i just enumerate is that's literally what was stripped away right all that's left is just sort of you know the computer in the box without any software and so then if you program that you can program a computer in a box with anything you want it to be. And that has been non-optimal, you know, for the children of the diaspora. So I think that that T'Challa represents paradise lost, you know. And so in doing that, there's a real responsibility. But the primary responsibility is just to tell a good story. And yeah, when we got when we when we're up to chapter three, there is a lot that is going on that that T'Challa has to process. There's a big reveal I won't discuss in this interview because it is so big, but that part was really, really fun to write for me personally, because I feel such a connection to the characters. And even though my connection was through the cinematic universe, I have to admit, I was not a comic reader. We're writing in the comic world, but there's so much crossover between those characters that of course I'm seeing the actors I saw in the movie, right? Well, and I'm hearing- How could you not, I'm yeah. Hearing Chadwick Boseman's voice in my head. So just to be able to write dialogue for him, to imagine him in motion, to, to see him in his power and to have this, this huge reveal that we get to write about in, in episode three was, was a huge thrill. And I'm actually going to tease that a little bit because I know exactly what you're talking about. So family is a big part of any great Black Panther story. And, and your first part of your story in three and four does, does such a fantastic job with that. So how would you describe that family dynamic and why it works so well in retelling? I think the real key is, even though they're comic characters, to just see them as people as, is the bottom line for me. I pride myself on creating realistic characters in my own fiction or in my own screenplays that are not related to this one. So just to bring those tools. Yeah, okay, he's a comic book character named T'Challa, but he's also a man who has been through these experiences. He's had traumas. He has scars emotionally, like all of us do. And when you lean into that, that's where you find the human heartbeat of any character. What have they lost? 
What are they seeking? What are their goals? Like, like basic writing 101. What does your character want? And when you understand that, that's when the heartbeat, st- you can listen, you can almost hear it like thumping in there. Well, Steve's got the beads, so he's got it. He's got it covered already. I, I can see it right there. So he's, he, if anybody's got the pulse, he does oh, at this yeah. point. Yeah, loving, loving the shirt. Right? Yeah. When I think about Wakanda, and, and this is just like an out, outside perspective, I've always kind of seen Wakanda's almost like that proverbial shining city or nation on the hill, it feels like. So that shine kind of dulls, though, in, in Sins of the King, again, without spoiling anything. So what kind of unique challenge did that actually bring to the story? Because I feel like this is a, a look at Wakanda that we've never really gotten in a way. Well, that's only because we've only seen you know Wakanda a couple times. I mean, <laughs> the fact is that if you want it to actually be an inspiration, then it has to it has to have conflicts. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to resemble the real world. If it's if it's too perfect, people can't believe in it. So even though at the same time people say, "Oh no, don't don't give these people flaws, don't do that." If you don't do that, the the writing has no impact at all. Because on some level in the back of your head, you know, this does not represent the real world, does not represent real human beings, real human beings have fears and failings, and they they fall down and they get back up. So, you know, in in any story, if someone is at a high level, you got two options. One is you tear them down. And the other is you build them up. You know, the option you can't do is it just stays the same. Everything, things things were good, and they stayed good. That's not that's good. Mm -hmm. And you, you usually isn't it usually doesn't work. Things are good and it got better. It has to be things were good. It fell apart and they clawed their way out of that and made things better. Or do they? Or do they? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So, I like the way. Yeah. So, I also yeah. love the way he said clawed your way out, which I'm hoping was completely <laughs> wow. intentional too, by the way. I uh, love that. It's both the Panthers claws and of course, claw the master of vibration. <laughs> oh yeah. There you go. There you so, go. I love yeah, it. I'll now, is boring exactly we're talking to tanana Revdu and steve barnes of course of marvel's black panther sins of the king which you can get right now at serial box and you touched on this earlier too actually this isn't a graphic novel this isn't a comic we're talking about so you're responsible for bringing these action sequences to life what's the process like in crafting those elements and helping kind of paint that mental picture that we all know of these characters we love so much, so much. Well, that's something that you, I'm not sure you want to open that door because <laughs> I, that's, that's, that's a specific love of mine is, is choreographing action. And the, the trick to choreographing the action sequence, I remember Jackie Chan talking about this, that, that during an action sequence, you shouldn't just be moving objects around or moving your hands and legs around. You're expressing the personality. You're doing a mini drama and, and Sylvester Stallone, in uh, in the Rocky movies, the 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 fight scenes, the Rocky movies, he knew that he was creating a three act morality play inside the overall structure of the story. So the question is one of what is it you're trying to express? So once you have the basic situation, these two groups are going to be in conflict, or these two people are going to be in conflict. Then you ask, well, who are they? What are they expressing? What are they saying? They're having a conversation with each other. It's not just tit for tat, not just bang, bang. It's bang, emotional reaction, decision, mm-hmm. bang, emotional reaction, decision, or between two people who are have all their skills and unconscious competence. It is a swirl of action in the midst of it. There's some part of themselves that's a little disconnected and observing it, or they swirl and they back away, breathe hard, and each of them then has their emotions and thoughts. So it's the same as any other conversation. 
or a love scene or anything else. It is what is it that we're trying to express here? What are we trying to reveal about these people? And that's going to express itself in the way they move and how they move and how they target and how much endurance they have and how much strength they have and how much ferocity they have and how, how much they're willing to die and what tools they have. And all those different things factor in. And every single character is going to be different. And every time that character expresses themselves combatively, it's going to be different. So it's it's a lot of fun to play with once you understand that it's just another part of the story. If it does not serve story purpose, it's like a porn scene. You know, there's no there's no personalities going on here. It's just just people smashing up against each other. Ding dong, pizza's here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That you know. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen that one. Now. Yeah. So, but, but cool boy. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's not that. And I love what you said about expressing the character yeah. through the action choreography, because in a lot of ways, isn't that the whole challenge of mm -hmm. writing comic characters? Comics are synonymous with action. Right. So if, if it wasn't going to have a lot of action, it would probably be a what, very different kind of story and a different kind of format. But the thing that was amazing in Civil War, the Marvel movie Civil mm -hmm. War, was that they understood each character. Each character had their own dialogue patterns. They had their own powers. They had their own fighting style. And then you did that Marvel thing, the thing that Marvel comic books perfected which is to take different characters from different worlds and different capacities and smash them against each other and see what comes out of it. We're going to have the human torch fight Spider-Man. And who's stronger? We all want to know. And That's right. Yeah, you're darn right we do. In what way? You know, <laughs> Spider-Man is stronger than Captain America, but Captain America just kicked his butt because Captain America had more experience. You know, infinitely more experience. He just knew he was, you know, he, he Spider-Man was faster, but it didn't make any difference. Captain America knew everything that mm -hmm. Spider-Man could possibly do and just completely, you know, and we we loved watching that. We love watching the respect between them. So when you have characters that are trying to kill each other, that's one sort of thing. If you have characters that are trying to dominate each other, that's another sort of thing. Don't want to hurt each other too badly. That's another sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. is there respect? Is there antipathy? Is there rage? What is it that they're feeling? How do they think? How do they strategize? And then use of territory, use of the environment. You know, you, it's, it's, it's that too. So you've got thinking, feeling human beings in conflict with each other. And it should never, two fight scenes should never look the same. Mm -hmm. Right. Ever. You know, it's, you know, are, is it going to be objective the way it looks from the outside? Is it going to be subjective the way it feels? Subjective to who? Which person? Subjective to the, the protagonist, to the attacker, to a neutral witness? God's eye view? You know, what is it? Wow, so you're kind of hot the way you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> you got all these different possibilities. And that's, that's even before you get into all the fun of what kind of martial arts style. I've done martial arts for most of my, almost all my life at this point. I've studied a lot of different things. So it's fun to take this piece from here and this piece from here and this piece from the Philippines and this piece from China mm -hmm. and this piece from Africa. And this piece over here. Know it all. Yeah, he will. Right. Yeah, he will. Right. And right. Um, what's exciting for me as someone who didn't grow up reading comics, you know, there's still a lot of Black Panther comics I haven't read. And I suspect there are a lot of listeners who are, who are like me who came to Black Panther through the movies rather than the comics. So even though our uh, project, uh, Marvel's Black Panther, Sense of the King, is set in the comic universe, there's enough that's familiar to people who just love the movies, whether it was Civil War, Getting Your First Glimpse, or, or Black Panther, they'll feel like they're at home too, which I think is exciting because it helps, I think, bring new readers to the comics. It's sort of a bridge. So we're a written project, enhanced audio, not quite a comic book, 
not quite a movie, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of a bridge. <laughs> when you were describing the, the action sequence, that, that reminded me of very, one very specific scene in one of your stories that I can't talk about because I can't spoil it, but it was very, two oh. characters that you'll know from the movie, by the way, in an action sequence between the two of them, and you just described it beautifully. So when people actually read or listen to this, you'll picture that when you do. Well, you know, you want to do all the work so that the reader just gets to experience the fun. You don't want them to think, wow, that's well choreographed. You want them to think, wow, that was exciting. Yeah, yeah and it wow. was. And it that totally was, was. And there was you a know? nice climactic moment in there. You guys, again, when you get there, I think it's in number four. When you get there, you'll get there and you'll understand. Okay, great. Sounds um, good. So I can't I'm in, to listen again myself. <laughs> uh, there you go. I'm a very unapologetic Shuri fan, especially mm. from the movie. I think movies gave me a better appreciation for her character. What was it like to actually give her a little bit more of a spotlight in this story? That was fun. You know, I don't think a lot of people realize that Shuri didn't come along in the comic universe until Reginald Hudlin created her. So you have to give a shout out to Reggie Hudlin for knowing that we needed a Shuri. And then of course, Ryan Coogler did a great job of characterizing her uh, in, in the film. So that is no doubt a favorite character for so many people, someone who is smart, but also I think we see more of her action side. She, she had some action stuff going on in Black Panther, but, but she's more than just a brain. She, you know, has, has wanted to compete against T'Challa in uh, in Reggie Hudlin's comic. And so she's uh, she's a very exciting character. She's fun to write. And, and that relationship, that kind of hero worship, but at the same time, I'm going to rib you kind of relationship is is always fun to write too. And quickly, before I let you go, we're, we're here at the beginning of Black History Month, and there's a lot of influential, influential individuals that will be justly celebrated this month, even as a fictional character, though, what role do you think Black Panther plays and the care and all the characters in that mythos? What do you think that what kind of a role do you think they play in black culture as a whole? I, you know, it's 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 so funny. Of course, you remember how we lost our minds when when the movie came out, uh, dressing up and going to see it multiple times with friends. And we've seen all the gifts of the celebrating school kids. And I think it was a really much needed moment of cultural celebration and lightness when there were a lot of things going on that made us feel like, oh my God, I wish we could just move to Wakanda. If only we're, Wakanda were a real place and we could actually live there. And I, I think a, a lot of us as African-Americans and really a lot of us period, feel a longing for a sort of more perfect version of our world. You know, one where there's no this or that or the other. And Wakanda can just be whatever we project on it, you know? And it's very healing, I think, to imagine a, a sort of a semi-utopian space like that, that is safe. I think that uh, T'Challa was the first fully actualized black man in comics, the first fully actualized black superhero. None of the others had their own names, could created their own powers, or their powers came from their culture. All the other black, whether you're talking about War Machine or, or, mm. you know, all, all the rest of them, you know, uh, I'm sorry, you know, his name, Rhodes, that's not an African name. You know, Falcon, mm. you know, Falcon got his powers, was, you know, he was, it, they were handed to him by, by Captain America and Black Widow, you know, and made by the, by, by, the, by the army. All of those characters were beholden to the very people who stripped away their identities. Every single one of them, you know, to, to, get, to get the joke, if your last name was Lumumba, that would be approximately the same situation. So Black Panther represents Paradise Lost in the sense of he is what 
people can fantasize he is what we might have been had we not been crippled in those ways. And every culture creates its, its stories of heroes. And they create mythologies that connect them directly to the divine, directly to the afterlife, to be able to answer that question, what are we? Where, where do we come from and where are we going? And so Black Panther is unique in that sense. I don't know of another character that has done that, especially one that has become a cultural touchstone. So I think that he's very important. And that's the reason why I'm, keep, I'm praying that they will recast that role and not just pass it to Shuri, which a lot of people want. I think that a, a, an actor dying should not kill the character. And, and that's, you know, that's how I feel about it. And I don't know what they're going to do but I hope they don't make a mistake. Well, there was no mistake in this story. I could tell you that right now. Marvel's <laughs> Black Panther, Sins of the King. You can listen to it and or read it. I actually did both. I was reading along while, while the narration was going from William Jackson Harper. That's, that's just how I roll. And you can get that right now on Serial Box and especially pay attention to their stories because they're amazing. It's Tanana Rivdu and Steve Barnes. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank Take you. care. Good talking to you. And it is such a good, deep, and intense story, too. Make sure you're getting Marvel's Black Panther, Sins of the King, on Serial Box right now. Up next, going to be talking about Marvel's Behind the Mask, a new documentary series on Disney+. Plus. But first, before I do that, a little bit of a surprise. Serial Box actually provided me with a clip of Marvel's Black Panther, Sins of the King. So before I get to my review of Marvel's Behind the Mask... Here is a preview of episode four of Marvel's Black Panther, Sins of the King from Serial Box. Again, provided by Serial Box, and there might be some spoilers here for episodes one through three, so be aware of that as you listen to this clip from episode four of Marvel's Black Panther, Sins of the King, narrated by William Jackson Harper. Every Wakandan schoolchild knew of Rudyarda's ruthlessness. At a young age... T'Challa himself had learned the shocking tale. How the Rudyardans had somehow slipped past the defenses. Warrior after warrior had slipped into the country, fighting like madmen with no worry for their lives, or the lives of children. It had happened during his father's rule, and it was almost fitting that T'Chaka should return at the start of a new, different kind of crisis with Rudyarda. Almost as if the crisis itself had summoned him. Now it was T'Chaka who listened in studious silence, as T'Challa told the disastrous tale of the damage done to Rudyarda and the dead shooter in New York City. By the time the story was finished, their elevator had brought them back to T'Challa's private entrance to the vibranium mine. The two emerged into softer, natural sunshine. The jungle at this end was snaked by antelope trails through the juniper trees, all in view of the breathtaking rock art that lined the mountainside. From this direction, he might be able to see the Rudyardan border, if not for the light fog misting the mountain. He felt a sting as he remembered Marimba's glowing face as she spoke of healing their nations. How could old wounds be healed when new ones were mounting? As you can see, T'Challa said, I've made quite the mess of diplomacy. So it seems in today's light, T'Chaka said. But clearly... You are not the only one to blame. And I would tell you a story, T'Challa. Perhaps you have heard one version, but hear me to the end. We have an unhappy history with Rudyada. And you can hear that story in Marvel's Black Panther, Sins of the King, 
from Cereal Box. This is writer Greg Pak, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Peter Parker, Miles Morales, Tony Stark, Kamala Khan. These are all the faces behind the mask, the people behind the mask. And that's why I was so intrigued to watch the documentary Marvel's Behind the Mask on Disney+. Plus. actually got a chance to see it a little bit early. So I want to give you a little bit of a spoiler-free review slash rundown of what you're going to get. It's a really nice deep dive into Marvel Comics starting all the way back from the beginning with Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and then moving forward, actually bouncing around a little bit between timelines and decades and things like that and talking about how Marvel, from the beginning, put an emphasis on the characters behind the masks and that was the basis for why they were going to be successful and how they were doing something a little bit different. Now, I think that, you know, we kind of always knew that, right? As fans, we knew that because that's one of the reasons that we loved Marvel in the first place. But this really gives you a, a paints a picture of the idea of what the idea was behind creating these characters and why they were created in the way that they were and why the directions were taken the way that they were taken. Now, there it's not every character that's going to get a really intense look in this documentary. I can tell you that right now. But you've got, you know, people like Joe Casada, you've got Brian Michael Bendis is a part of this. You've got Dennis Cowan is a part of this as well. Tony Isabella, Greg Pak, and a lot more names that are involved in this. And and you get a really good insight into the characters that they created, characters that others have created as well. Look, if I sat here and told you all the names that are a part of this documentary, we'd be here for like 20 minutes because there was a lot of amazing names that were a part of this. And some of them even talked about in the early going. It was, even Jack Kirby's son was a part of this as well. Talked about in the early going about how a lot of the people that worked at Marvel at the beginning were immigrants. And that, you know, kind of, you know, shaped some of the way that the characters were created and how, you know, they were had to hide who they really were, just like some of these immigrants did when they came over to this country in the early going and had having to change their names and things like that. So that's almost how the secret identity was was not only a created but be focused on because this these were the people they had to be. Jack Kirby's son was actually talking about something with his dad and one of the characters from the Fantastic Four. And I won't spoil the story and maybe it's one that you've heard before, but it's not and I don't want to spoil it for you because it was a really interesting insight into Jack Kirby's mindset or potential mindset. Anyway, so I thought that that was really, really cool as well. But one of the things that I thought was really great about this documentary, and it wasn't just looking at the characters and getting an idea of what the thought process was when they were created and how they evolved, but it would be really easy because Marvel's making this documentary themselves or or Disney or whoever you want to throw out there to give credit for who's making this documentary for Disney+. Plus, But... Would have been really easy for it to be very self-congratulatory, right? And patting yourselves on the back and talking about, oh, how we do stuff right all the time. But you know what was great about this was that they actually took the time to show times where they didn't quite get it right or they just flat out got it wrong. And how like the early approach to Miss Marvel really wasn't in line with what we would expect from Marvel when Miss Marvel was first created and also with Luke Cage in the era of black exploitation and how that character maybe kind of wasn't exactly 
everything that he should have been when he was created. And and also Larry Hama talking about how Asian characters were portrayed in comics in the early going as well. It, and, and how maybe we got this wrong and here's why we should change it and here's how we went about changing it. So I like that they were able to look back, and it wasn't just a Marvel problem. I'm not saying that. This was a problem across comics. That's pretty obvious, right? Especially the fact that there were no African Americans in comics, as, as certainly not as major characters anyway, like at all for decades, right? So you look at this and you go, they're not just talking about all the ways that they succeeded. They talked about ways how they didn't get it right, how they went to make it right sort of thing. And the, and the X-Men was another example in this documentary about how early on the X-Men weren't what they should have been and why they didn't really connect with fans the way that they should have. And the way that that, again, changed and evolved. And it, it's just a really good look. Behind the Mask is a perfect title because it's a really good look at how when we read these comics... You step into that suit yourself, whether it's literally by putting on a costume for Halloween or, or, or for a con and cosplaying or something like that. You become this character, but more so in your mind when you're reading these books. There's an amazing way that Joe Casada puts it at the very beginning of this documentary. Again, not spoiling it for you because I want you to hear the description for yourself. And it tells you why and how you're supposed to feel like you're you are in that suit. You are whatever character that is. So I just thought that this was a brilliant crafting of how these characters came about and how Marvel has tried to take a picture of the world and put it on the page. If it's happening now, it should be happening on the pages of Marvel Comics. It was basically the gist of what was going on in this documentary. And I loved how they painted that picture. And they talked about how Marvel was just a fun place to work in the early going too. It's just the, the, they were, they were just, you know, a bunch of crazy people making comics and how great that was. And they actually showed a picture I've talked about. I mean, it's been a while, but you know, you talk about the bullpen about how they used to have these writers and artists in the bullpen. And that's what they did. They, they worked on comics, the bullpen doesn't exist really as much anymore, but there was this great group that always just was constantly working on comics, and it created such a fun environment for Marvel. I'm sure it's fun now, too, but it's a little bit different now than it was back then. How could it not be? Again, times change. You evolve with changing times, and that's what Marvel tries to focus on doing, and this documentary really highlighted that well, I thought. So take an hour out of your life. Go on to Disney Plus and watch Marvel's Behind the Mask. I think you'll be so locked in and intrigued to the thought process from the creators themselves, the writers, the artists, the editors, everyone behind the scenes, and how this all comes together. I think you'd be fascinated by it, and I think it'll give you a greater appreciation for how these comics were made, or maybe that light bulb over your head, you're going, exactly. That's exactly how I feel, and they put it that way perfectly. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Marvel's Behind the Mask. Up next, how about we get to the comics themselves? It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is writer Kyle Higgins, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And after that, I'm just ready to talk about some comics. Let's do this. Whatever you're reading on, it's time 
for what we're reading. And I haven't done a didn't do a DC book last week. I actually want to dive into a second issue of DC's Future State, and that is Robin Eternal number two from DC. Megan Fitzsimmons writing this one. Eddie Barrows on the pencils. Eber Ferreira on the inks. Adriana Lucas on the colors. Pat Brasseo on the letters. Ivan Rodriguez and Emanuela Lapuccino, Lapuccino, excuse me, on the covers. Now, again, spoilers abound here because we have to talk about the first issue. I want to dive into the second issue as well because biggest spoiler of all is that Tim Tim Drake isn't dead. He survives. Now, he does absorb that Lazarus resin that he was actually trying to destroy. So therein lies the problem. So, you know, you just want the magistrate to get it, but now he's got it, and you can imagine that that's probably not a good thing. You've got Spoiler there. You've got Darcy there. They're trying to help with this onslaught, but Tim doesn't really need the help. You know what the Lazarus pit can do. That Lazarus effect can be, you know, pretty incredible in the beginning anyway. Now, what's interesting about this issue, though, is it goes beyond the brute strength of what happens in this Lazarus effect. It takes inside the mind of what happens. So who Tim sees and hears inside his mind and how it affects him is a really interesting part of this book. That part I won't spoil for you. The goal is still the same, though. But who will he save and who will he hurt in the process of trying to get rid of this resin, right? And then you've got a peacekeeper who gets involved. And if you've been reading Future State, you know these peacekeepers are in Gotham that you know, work with the magistrate and all this other stuff. I won't get into the whole thing. Now, it's unexpected that you run into one of them, but it it does lead to some finality at the towards the end of this book. And what Tim does is very un-Tim Drake-like. And maybe that's Lazarus, maybe it's not. But the ending of this book is very open to interpretation. That much I can tell you. Now, as I'm reading this, you know, the relationship between Spoiler and Robin in this instance... It's not really Dick and Babs, right? It's not Nightwing and Batgirl. But it still has a, had a big impact on me in this story. That relationship's a lot newer, too. So how could it have the same effect? But watching them interact together, there's an innocence there. And it you know sort of brings Tim back at a certain point. And it's really interesting. That power is there. And you see how deep the relationship really is. We also get to see Tim in a very different light, like I mentioned, and you realize that he might actually be the most complete Robin ever. Like, Dick was a very skilled fighter. So was Damien. Jason Todd had that, you know, fearlessness about him. But Tim is a skilled fighter. He's, this, he's easily the smartest Robin of the bunch. But he also has that compassion as well and that need to protect. So... I mean, arguably, he's, I didn't say he was the best Robin. I'm not making that debate. I'm just saying he's probably the most complete Robin out of all of them. The art in this book, spectacular job bouncing in between the realities and bringing out that rage when it had to be there. And hats off to Tep Hat the lettering on this, because there was a lot to hand, a lot of heavy lifting on the lettering side here, and I thought that that was done very, very well. I actually enjoyed... Robin Eternal. I know I've been a little bit, you know, fence riding, maybe even a little bit critical of some of the future state state stuff. Robin Eternal was actually a really good book, and I can't wait to see what comes from that. I'm actually going to dive into another Image comic story this week. Radiant Black, number one from Image, because Kyle Higgins writing this one, Marcelo Costa on the art, and Becca Carey on the letters here. 
This follows a character named Nathan Burnett. And again, I'm going to get into maybe a little bit of spoiler territory with this review. Nathan's life sucks. Let's just, I'm just going to put it plainly. He's in debt. His work's not going well. He has to move back in with his parents. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but he makes him, you know, he's in failure mode right now, right? That's how he feels. So good news or bad news, depending on how you look at it, his buddy Marshall is there to welcome him home and, you know, kind of get back into his life. Now, strange things can happen when you go out drinking, but floating orbs usually aren't part of it unless, you know, there's something, unless you drank something you shouldn't have. Let's just put it that way. Now, Nathan reaches out for this thing. Again, maybe something you shouldn't do. And it not only gives him a suit, but it gives him some crazy powers as well. Now, is he mentally ready to handle something like this, given everything that's happening in his life? What is this that he's going through? An origin story is born here. So, yes, it is a superhero story, and you do, we do have our origin story in this. And trust me, I didn't really give away anything there. There's plenty of fill-in there that you're going to get when you're reading this book. You actually find out at the end, though, that there's much more to be revealed about this or about the origin of this power and, you know, where it comes from. Is he the only one sort of thing? We get a little bit of teases to that. So, yes, this is a superhero story, but it's not the most conventional one. There's no mentor. There's nobody that knows what they're doing. The dynamic between Nathan and Marshall is fun, but it's like watching a couple of people try to put a like a giant Lego set together without instructions, basically. And they don't and they're friends. But, you know, just like any friends, they don't always get along. They don't always agree on stuff. And that's apparent from the very beginning. But you could tell at their core, they just he Marshall just wants to help Nathan and vice versa. So they are still friends. But there's a lot. This is a lot to unpack. For It's almost like if this happened to you tomorrow, how would you deal with it depending on what was going on in your life? Imagine you gained these powers on your worst day. That's not necessarily a happy, momentous thing. It can be a very scary thing. And this book really does a good job at kind of exploring that in its very early going. The art in this story is very good extremely sharp. The suit reveal is a big moment here and it has to be in a new book like this and Costa nails it 100%. And the way that this was all tied together in that moment I thought was very good. This is a true origin issue so the next couple of issues I think going to be really key to how good this book is really going to be but this is definitely one you're going to want to get the first issue of and form your own opinion on. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. You know there's always some interesting nerd news tidbits to talk about, so we'll do that next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Mark Paul Gossler from The Passage on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's a Game of Thrones reunion, kind of. It's time for nerd news. I mean, it is happening on HBO. We have the casting of Ellie and Joel in the Last of Us HBO series, let's start with Bella Ramsey because she was the first one to be announced by The Hollywood Reporter. She will play Ellie, and you might remember Bella Ramsey on Game of Thrones. Very memorable performance on Game of Thrones, actually, as Lyanna Mormont. And you know how that kind of turned out for her. But she was just this fierce warrior. It was certainly one of my favorites at the time on the show. And, of course, you know, could have seen her last a little bit longer, but I think she's going to be perfect 
as Ellie. She's got the physicality. She's got this raw emotion to her. I think that she's going to do a fantastic job. And one of those times, one of the, it's one of those castings where you hear it and you go, "Oh yeah, I, yeah, I could see that." So I think this is spot on, perfect. And then, you know, in, in a, like a hold my beer moment, Deadline reports that Pedro Pascal is going to be playing Joel. Yes, the Mandalorian himself going to be stepping outside of the suit and playing another very popular character. And this actually is very interesting because Pedro Pascal, you know, there's been a lot of reports around the Mandalorian and everything like that. No, we're not going to talk about Gina Carano. That's been talked about enough. Don't need to talk about it anymore. We'll just stick with this. There's been a lot of talk about you know, is Pedro Pascal happy with the Mandalorian and happy being on the set, yada, yada, yada. And I'm not getting into those rumors either, but there is an interesting little tidbit of information from Collider. And they say that in this deal with The Last of Us, that The Last of Us will get first priority for Pedro Pascal. Now, first priority deal, as I explained, it means that if there's a scheduling conflict, The Last of Us would get top billing. Over the Mandalorian. Now, this isn't the first time that somebody's had a first priority deal. These things kind of get worked out. You work around filming and stuff like that, and everybody's happy, right? And if you think about it, and this is really important, Pedro Pascal doesn't actually need to be on set for a lot of his work in the Mandalorian. There's a lot of voiceover work. I mean, there was that picture that was floating around on social media this week of him holding a pillow as Baby Yoda and doing the lines for the Mandalorian, but he wasn't actually in the suit. He was just recording the lines in in voiceover. So he could still do that. And the Mandalorian could live on, and then you have him on set when he needs to be on set. Otherwise, it's stunt people doing the work inside the suit. That's not hard to do, okay? So don't think that this dooms the Mandalorian in any way. Plus, we don't know how long the Mandalorian's going to last anyway. So there's that. And... I know now. Would I want to see the Mandalorian without him? No, not necessarily. I don't think that the, that the show could would completely shut down, but it would certainly lose something. That's for sure. So yeah, I don't think the Mandalorian's in trouble. I do kind of feel bad though because I think Bella Ramsey. I think that casting is huge. I think I thought you could have spread that out a day, right? You could have given at least a day of separation there. I think that in all of Mandalorian talk and as popular as Pedro Pascal is. Let's give credit where credit's due to Bella Ramsey, who I think is going to be fantastic in this role and might just steal the show. Who knows? I love Pedro Pascal. I think he's going to be great, too. But just watch out for Bella Ramsey because I've been very impressed with what I've seen from her so far. Going to fast forward back almost a week, actually, because I haven't gotten a chance yet to talk about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier trailer that dropped during the big game last week. And... Now, I remember the series is going to be coming out on Disney Plus on March the 19th. And I will say this. I really like the adversarial buddy cop vibe between Bucky and Sam. I think it's it's not necessarily... I, I've seen the Lethal Weapon comparison. I'd almost go 48 hours instead of Lethal Weapon. I mean, I guess Lethal Weapon at first, right? And maybe this is, this is not necessarily an at-first partnership between Bucky and Sam, though. They've been around each other before, obviously... You know, they haven't had any love lost for each other then either, but now they have to work together. And I love the fact that that Baron Zemo is back. I love the fact that we're going to get him in an actual costume this time. He's going to get his supervillain suit. But I was really excited 
to see Sharon Carter and seeing her kicking some ass in this trailer, too, because I think that Emily Van Camp has been just ridiculously underused in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and even just in the Marvel Universe in general. I mean, you, there were places that you could have used her and they didn't. So hopefully she's going to have a huge role in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and this will start something for the future because Marvel Studios looking towards the future, right? Well, look at Sharon Carter, okay? And just because this is in a Civil War timeline doesn't mean you can't fast forward and use her in future movies and TV series, by the way. Let's just put that out there right now. I do think it's interesting that even at this point, as we're almost a month away from the premiere of the series, Marvel's really keeping U.S. Agent under wraps. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. We've only really seen the same little snippet of him running out onto that what looks like a football field and high-fiving the band leader sort of thing, right? That's really all we've seen from U.S. Agent. We don't have any more beyond that. And I think that that's really interesting that they're going that route. But I do think that there's going to be a cool comedy aspect to this, and I don't think it's going to be forced at all. I think that what you're going to get is some nonstop action. I think this might be the most action-intensive Marvel series that we're going to get. I mean, I know Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. had its fair share of action, but I think this one's going to be loaded with it. And this one's going to feel more like a Marvel Marvel Studios movie than WandaVision does. But I don't know if that's going to work for or against Falcon and Winter Soldier because WandaVision's been so unique and been such a step outside. Fans kind of went, whoa, this is cool. This is different. This is awesome. I like this. And now you're going to bring it back with the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And I'm not saying that people are just going to stop liking the Marvel Studios format for the movies, but what I'm saying is is that this is like the return to normalcy. And I'm I'm curious to see what the response to that is like. But, I mean, having Sebastian Stan back and Anthony Mackie, ain't nothing wrong with that, right? And I think that there's really going to be a fun dynamic there. So I was looking forward to this a ton before. This trailer definitely didn't change that. I'm already really hyped for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Got some animation news, very interesting stuff this week, and one of them is HBO Max announcing some adult animation series, and this one really highlighted it. Velma, yes, from the Mystery Gang, the Scooby-Doo Gang, going to have a Velma origin story series, and it's going to have Mindy Kaling, who's going to be the creator and the the star of the animated series, and it's basically going to follow... Velma and talk about her very complicated past. Who knew that Velma had a complicated past? I didn't, but apparently we're going to find out about it in this series. And and I actually think that Mindy Kaling is a pretty good choice for this. I think she's got the quick wit to handle a character like Velma and and give her your her own unique spin on it. So I actually think that this is a is a really neat thing that we might be getting here. There's also a couple more that were announced. Fired on Mars is another one. It's an existential workplace comedy on the set of a Martian campus. So that ought to be pretty interesting. And Pete Davidson's involved in that. And you've got the Clone High reboot, if I'm not mistaken. And Phil Lord and Chris Miller with Bill Lawrence going to be involved in this one and with a, with another star-studded group of producers. So... And then you got close enough getting a two-series renewal. Did you know? Actually, I didn't know this until the press release came out. Remember that story from Brian Michael Bendis and David Mack called Cover from DC Comics? It was about this comic artist, and then he gets tangled up 
in this espionage story. Well, actually, Rooster Teeth is doing an adaptation of that. It's going to be one of the HBO Max animated series that's in development. So I, I was like, hey, wait a second. I didn't know this was happening. So, you know, keep your eyes open for some really neat adult animation stuff coming to HBO Max as they kind of shore up that end of the streaming service. It's actually rounding out the programming quite well. Here's something that fans, 30 million fans actually, will be pretty excited about, and that is Redwall. Though those books are going to be adapted now by Netflix as movies and series, by the way. And this is the first time, this is the first deal ever where all of the Redwall books have been under one ownership or, or, or the rights have all been in one place. So Brian Jacques' works will be adapted as animated films and series. Going to be starting with the film, and it's going to be written by Over the Garden Walls, Patrick McHale. It's going to be set as the first Redwall book. It's going to be the, the subject of this first film. And then there's also going to be an event series based on Martin the Warrior. If you're not familiar with Redwall, I'll say I was not when I first heard about this. So I was like, what is Redwall? And then I look at it, and it basically tells stories of heroic animals of Redwall Abbey. And yes, it's kind of what you're thinking. And Martin the Warrior is actually a warrior mouse. He's got a sword and everything. Then you go and I'm like, okay, I need a little bit of of background here. So I go and look up this particular character. And I mean, this is a more tragic backstory than you'd think. I know that 30 million people have read these books. So either you know what I'm talking about or you don't or you have no clue. And in which case, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I already spoiled it for myself a little bit. So I'm not going to spoil it for you. But there's a lot of depth here, and there's a lot of books that can be adapted. So this is something that Netflix could be running for a long, long time. And Netflix, already rich with animation, animated movies and series, just got a lot richer as far as I'm concerned. You're talking about years and years of stuff that could be adapted. I mean, I know that fans of Mouse Guard are probably a little upset right now. Like, wait a minute. We couldn't find a home for our movie. Now you've got something similar that's going to be coming to Netflix. Kind of similar. Not exactly similar, but kind of similar. So I understand why some Mouse Guard fans would be upset, but this one's got a lot of depth, a lot of very different, interesting characters in it as I was doing my research here. So Redwall coming to Netflix, no release date or anything like that for the first film or for the event series. But yeah, keep you posted on that when we get some updates. This news actually happened very early on in the week, but I didn't want to let it slide here, and that is that Amazon signing a first-look deal with Outlier Society, and it's going to start with Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. Now, if you're not familiar with Outlier Society, it's from CEO Michael B. Jordan. Yes, the Michael B. Jordan, and it basically highlights more diverse movies. That is their focus, and Elizabeth Raposo, who was the president of production for Paramount, is also the president of Outlier Society. So, like I said, this new deal going to start with Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. And Michael B. Jordan is going to start as Senior Chief John Kelly, one of the more popular Tom Clancy characters, actually. And it's going to be an origin story of that character. His family's been murdered. His pregnant wife, too, by the way. You want to talk about Without Remorse. You've got Russian soldiers killing this guy's family. Yeah, they're not going to be a whole lot of remorse there. You've got Jody Turner-Smith's going to be a part of this cast as well. You've got Jamie Bell, apparently Guy Pierce 
going to be involved in this one too. So this is actually in the Jack Ryan verse too, by the way. So it makes sense that this lands at Amazon. The one thing that I actually had a question about when this first deal, first look deal was announced with Amazon was that, okay, so what happens with Creed 3 and what happens with the DC Static Shocks story that Michael B. Jordan is already doing? So those two projects, and by the way, Tom Clancy's Without Remorse coming on April the 30th. With those two projects that I just mentioned, I'm guessing that Creed 3 is still going to be one of those theatrical release type movies through Paramount. I think that that's probably what will happen. But Static Shock, it would be very interesting if a DC series ended up on Amazon Prime Video. I think that would be really, really interesting. I don't think we can rule out HBO Max. I don't think we can rule out theatrical for this either. But I would keep my eye on this because I think that this is a really, really interesting little nugget of information that's kind of getting lost in the shuffle of this whole thing. But I mean, this is a way for an outlier society, like I said, is is their goal is to produce and acquire elevated films showcasing diverse, bold filmmakers. That is the quote, okay? So it's not just about the cast, it's about filmmakers as well. I think this is a really cool deal for Amazon. They're actually going to team up with 360-degree alliance too. They're going to create... All kinds of stuff through Audible. There's going to be music, fashion, a whole a whole bunch of other stuff. So a big deal for Amazon, a, a big deal also for Michael B. Jordan's Outlier Society. And I think that this is, in a certain way, a direct response to Disney Plus signing up Ryan Coogler to a first look deal, right? So Amazon's like, okay, this is the streaming wars, okay? Yeah, we we need to have we need our guy. And their guy's Michael B. Jordan. And Michael B. Jordan, again, a rising star, not just in front of the camera, but behind it as well, making waves. So I think that this is a very important acquisition for Amazon. And a lot of talent going to be in the streaming wars now. As a matter of fact, you're going to be able to talk to Michael B. Jordan on your Alexa. He's going to be one of the Alexa voices that you can use, too, just like they've got for Samuel L. Jackson. So a lot of interesting stuff coming up, and I'm going to try and keep you posted on as much of it as possible. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Once again, thanks to Tanana Rivdu and Steve Barnes for joining me this week to talk about Marvel's Black Panther, Sins of the King. Get that right now on Serial Box. If you want to hear some of my other Serial Box interviews, find out more about Serial Box or just other podcasts that we've done in general, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Got the nerd news up there for you, too. Also... Make sure you're following along on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram at Down and Nerdy on Facebook. Going to have some very interesting announcements coming in the next few weeks. You're not going to want to miss out on that. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.